This is Blankenship on Trial, West Virginia Public Broadcasting's podcast about former Massey CEO Don Blankenship and the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director at West Virginia Public Broadcasting. We'll look at the evidence, the arguments, and why it matters. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. This week was all about Bill Ross. He's a former MSHA ventilation specialist who went to work for Massey, and he wrote this infamous memo to Massey criticizing safety practices at the company. It's become a key piece of information for the prosecution. Reporter Ashton Mara joins us to talk about Ross's testimony. Hey, Ashton. Hi, Scott. And we're also joined by Mike Hissom. He's an attorney with Bailey and Glasser and a former assistant U.S. attorney. Hey, Scott. Ashton, so the prosecution called Ross a whistleblower. Why is that? Steve Ruby called Ross a whistleblower in his opening statement because of this memo that he wrote that was critical of Massey. Ross was a ventilation specialist for MSHA. Like you said, he worked for MSHA for 32 years. And then about a week after he retires, he starts working at Massey. He's there to train people on safety, to teach them about ventilation regulations. And he writes this memo about a year into his work there criticizes the things that they're doing, says that they're plainly cheating on dust samples, that they have this massive amount of violations. A lot of Ross's testimony this week got pretty emotional. He broke down a few times on the stand as he described his frustrations with Massey, especially with these violations, the number of violations they received before the explosion. This part was really emotional for the families as well. After Massey announced this hazard elimination team, Mm -hmm. Ross writes in an email that he was, quote, thrilled to see a new Massey energy. He then breaks down by and says, you know, I never saw those changes come into fruition. He thought there were going to be improvements, and then he says there weren't. He thought they were really going to make a change, that they were really serious about it. And then, you know, nine months later, this mine explodes and 29 men lose their lives. And he testified, Mike, at one point that he had a conversation directly with Don Blankenship. What what did, what was that about? Yeah, he testifies about a conversation in which he explains to Mr. Blankenship that at least one additional miner is needed to help out with safety routine maintenance at Upper Big Branch, and that he explains to Mr. Blankenship that what what he can't afford, what the chairman of the company can't afford is to have a disaster. And that's a critical piece of testimony for the government. It's where Steve Ruby ended his opening statement. It's where he ended his direct examination of Mr. Ross. And there's a concept in trial advocacy of recency and primacy. It's a really important concept in trial advocacy. And the recency part is what the jury hears last matters. And so it's not an accident that Steve Ruby ends his opening and he ends his direct exam with that point from Mr. Ross. We've been talking a long time about, you know, the busy CEO defense for Blankenship and how can you directly, uh, you know, attach him to what happened at Upper Big Branch and what didn't happen. Ross is important to that. And this memo is important to that. He is. And it's not just Ross's testimony and the Ross memo, but there are these two recordings that the jury has already heard now multiple times of Don Blankenship reacting to the Ross memo and the Ross in the Ross testimony. Remind us what what did Don Blankenship say about the Ross memo? It's your favorite line, Scott, that he said that it's worse than a Charleston Gazette story. (laughs) So there you go. Um, Ashton, what is the defense's response to both the memo and to Ross? Because they cross-examined him, right? Right. They started his cross-examination yesterday and finished up with that today. 
they tried to keep this memo out three times. They tried to prevent Ross from, or they tried to prevent the prosecution, excuse me, from using this memo. And the third time earlier this week, they basically just asked for redactions. Can we take parts of it out? And what the what the defense is saying is Ross's statements in this memo that are so critical of Massey are coming from unnamed minors. We don't know what mines they worked in. You can't verify that any of those people worked in the Upper Big Branch mine, which is what the indictment is about. And then Steve returns and says, well, there are, Steve Ruby returns and says, well, there are parts of the indictment that say that Massey in general had issues. Mm-hmm. But basically, the defense is saying, you can't prove any fi- any of this. You can't verify any of these complaints. Ross did testify that he had a conversation with Everett Hager at one point, who was the superintendent of UBB. And Hager was saying, we need more manpower. I can't get the jobs done underground that I need to do because I don't have enough people to do them. But that's the only person that Ross could specifically point to. But Everett Hager's name doesn't show up in the memo. And I would just add there that there is often the case in trial that there's one strategy taken outside of the presence of the jury and one strategy taken in front of the jury. And the point that Ashton is making was a very big issue, and it was stressed to the jury, but a big issue in trying to keep the Ross memo out. I think when it comes to the defense case and to closing, they'll embrace the Ross memo. They'll say that we hired Ross, Don Blankenship, Chris Atkins, who was the number two at the company. We hired Ross as soon as he left MSHA because we needed his help in a health and safety initiative. Mm. And you're focusing then on a very narrow time period from the summer of 2009 to April the 5th, 2010, when the mine exploded. And is there any evidence of Ross blowing the whistle and being silenced? But I think the big point in the prosecution that the prosecution made in their opening statement calling Ross this whistleblower that was silenced, you know, that came up in the cross-examination as well. And it came out, you know, very specifically. Bill Taylor asked Ross, did you feel like you were silenced after this memo came out? And Ross said, no, I never felt like I was silenced. As a matter of fact, Ross was asked by Don Blankenship to write a script for a video in which Don Blankenship was going to talk to everybody at Massey about safety. But then it comes out that that video was never made. But still, at the same time, you know, Ross is saying, I didn't feel like I was silenced. I was asked to work on other projects after my memo and after my criticisms came out. And that goes back, Scott, to that critical time period of the summer of 09 to April the 5th and were Ross's activities a symptom of the disease or a symptom of the cure? And that's what the case is going to come down to, to me, in the closing statements. So today there was this explosive allegation involving MSHA potentially destroying documents. Mike, what's this all about? Yeah, so this is an issue that's a hot topic in white-collar criminal defense, and it goes to the government's discovery obligations, its obligation to turn material over to the defense. And there, there are sort of two things there, two big takeaways. One is that there can be direct legal consequences. If the government doesn't meet its obligations, if it violates its obligations, there can be consequences for cases. And we saw this, for instance, in the Ted Stevens prosecution that was eventually dismissed after a conviction at trial. The other thing is that just from a trial tactic standpoint, it can go to a government distrust theme. Um, you know, and it's why you hear these controversies about Lois Lerner's emails at the IRS or Hillary Clinton's emails. And if the defense team can get in front of the jury this idea that MSHA was destroying documents, carrying documents, literally what we heard today outside of the presence of the jury, carrying documents out of an MSHA office in black trash bags. That's what Ross said Ross is accusing MSHA of 
carrying MSHA officials of carrying documents out in black trash bags to, to dispose of them so they're not available to him, right? Yeah, and it was pretty layered. It was actually Ross relaying a secretary, his former secretary, telling him something. And this was a very strange setup in which the judge was asking, outside of the presence of the jury, the judge in the case was asking Bill Ross questions based on an affidavit that he had signed at some later at some earlier time. But so I th- think that the timeline here is really important because Ross goes to find out about these documents in, they said, June or July of 2010. He goes to find these documents from 2003 and 2004, and Emsha says, we don't have them anymore. And then Emsha says they have a policy of only keeping documents for five years. So if we don't know when the documents disappeared, is it really illegal for them to not have documents from seven years ago, six years ago? I mean, I think that's the question. The timeline is the issue. And I have to admit, I'm confused. So <laughs> like a lot of the jurors would be. And now this didn't happen in front of the jurors, right? And so why is that? Why didn't the jurors get to see this questioning about the MSHA documents being destroyed? Well, there. in addition to, I think, the judge being concerned about this testimony which pertains to a legal issue of discovery obligations tainting the jury or confusing the jury there's also a lot of hearsay involved but it's not uncommon for during a trial the defense to start pulling on threads that may lead to something that that leads to a discovery violation or what they may allege is a discovery violation down the road so they could conceivably get something that ends up being a technicality of sorts that it blows up the whole case I mean that's what they're that's what they're fishing for. Basically. That's right. In 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 this world today, in the post, and there's even a phrase and used in the Department of Justice of the post Ted Stevens world, and there's post Ted Stevens training for prosecutors. This is a big issue. It's something that everybody would be focused on in any major white collar case. And even if the prosecution itself didn't hide anything, it, it doesn't really matter because MSHA is part of the federal government, as is the prosecution, and MSHA if they hid something. The, the prosecution's in trouble, right? Could be. It could, could be. be. There's, there would be a lot of evidence. There would be a lot of briefing on those legal issues. Well, and so it's kind of like just like Chris Blanchard last week. He's the former head of Performance Coal, which owned Upper Big Branch. The defense is using the prosecution witness, in this case Ross, to try to make some of their case. Uh, another one, Ashton, involves Ma- Massey's claim that MSHA wouldn't let them use belt air. What's that about, Ashton? So belt air is air that comes in to ventilate the face of the long wall section across the belt. There were some rule changes at MSHA saying that you could no longer use belt air because there was a risk of a fire. And that air would pull the smoke into where the miners were working instead of out by, which is what they call the outside of the working section, and out of the mine. There's danger in using belt air. So Ross testifies that the mine plan they were using at UBB needed that belt air in order to ventilate the face. He goes to MSHA to explain this plan to them, and an MSHA official tells him, no one in my district will be using belt air. This is huge for the defense. And so, and meaning that MSHA is telling you how to ventilate your coal mine. As well, opposed to what the government is fond of saying, which is that the operator, the company, decides how to ventilate its coal Which mine. leads to the whole thing that when, you know, when Blankenship did his documentary about Upper Big Branch, that was the claim. This wasn't our fault, essentially. This was MSHA's fault. MSHA screwed this up by not allowing us to do what we wanted to do. And they get Ross to admit that on the stand. And they don't obviously bring up the documentary. But one of the claims in the documentary is that MSHA forced this ventilation plan on us. And then there was less 
there was less air running through that face. And they ask Ross that. So when MSHA came in and they told you you couldn't use belt air and they put this new ventilation plan in place, was there a reduction of air in the face? And Ross said, yeah, there was. One of the questions here then is, does it even matter to the actual charges? In other words, this is an issue of what caused the explosion, but we're not trying what caused the explosion. We're trying these charges about conspiracy and lying. So why are we talking about Beltair? Because, Scott, the victim of the conspiracy that you mentioned is MSHA. It's MSHA being defrauded. And if you can tar MSHA in front of the jury, if you can make the jury think, I'm not so sure about MSHA, I think it, 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 it may not be directly relevant to the jury instruction on count one, but it may make the jury wonder about whether that uh, is as serious. We are near the uh, end of the prosecution's case. They have a, maybe one more witness, right? I think we're thinking probably two. So two nobody, so far, nobody has testified really about these securities violations. And there, of course, two of the three charges are based on lying to securities officials and lying to investors about Massey's safety record. Somebody has to talk about that. And then the final witness, which they have already talked about, will be Lafferty, the FBI agent who helped the prosecution with the investigation. And then the defense starts its case. It should be, uh, we'll have, I would say, several more weeks of uh, Blankenship on trial to look forward to. I'm Scott Finn, Executive Director of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Ashton Marr, reporter for West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Thank you for joining us. Appreciate yeah, it. Thanks. And Mike Kissam, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Scott. Former Assistant U.S. Attorney and also a lawyer with Bailey & Glasser here in Charleston. This is Blankenship on Trial. I'm Scott Finn. Blankenship on Trial is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. See illustrations from the trial, daily updates, and more on our website, wvpublic.org. And make sure you follow us on Twitter for the latest, at Ashton Mara and at WVPublicNews. Thanks for listening. <laughs>